So during lockdown, coffee has remained a high demand product. People in home offices across the global north are consuming their grounds using such products as French press and Aeropress, increasing the demand on coffee supplies. Cafes were one of the first consumer outlets to reopen as people queued up two meters apart for their favorite flat white. The coffee's role in office-based societies is not an enigma, but how does this peak in product affect those who export the black gold? Augustine Sedgwick highlights that today, coffee is the commodity we use more than any other to think about how the world economy works. In Coffee Land, he reconstructs the story of the Hill family's coffee enterprise and details how coffee capitalism impacted El Salvador. By uncovering the private coffee-stained papers of the Hill family and employing world history methods, he reveals how coffee contributed to the 20th century conflict and social issues in the Republic. I'm Jordan Buchanan and Philip McGowan and I will conduct this interview with Augustine Sedgwick on his book Coffee Land to learn from his experience of writing this history and how it relates to global Latin America. So thanks for agreeing to take part in this interview, Augustine. Could you introduce yourself and give a short overview of your book? Sure, thanks very much for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, I am a historian primarily of the United States, but also the world who uh, lives in New York. I live in New York and I teach at the City University of New York. Coffee Land uh, is based on my um, Harvard University dissertation, which was I completed about uh, almost exactly 10 years ago. And I have sp I spent uh, nine years, more or less, turning it into a book that was published almost exactly one year ago um, by Penguin in the US and in the UK. And uh, the book tells the global history of coffee through the story of one family in El Salvador, as it happened the story of a British expatriate in El Salvador who um, left his uh, relatively impoverished home in Manchester in the late 19th century and went out into the wider world to seek his fortune there, like a lot of um, poor uh, young men did at that time. And he got a job as a textile salesman that took him to Central America. And from that uh, opportunity, he created um, truly one of the most important coffee dynasties in not only El Salvador, but I would say also in Latin America and even in the wider world. The family is still um, uh, more than a century and a half later invested in coffee in an important way in El Salvador. Uh, it's of course one of the most important families of the, of the legendary Salvador and 14 families and with part of that country's social and economic elite. And I use their story to tell uh, what I hope is a really global story about um, the history of coffee over, I suppose, the last uh, 450 years, more or less. Besides, I guess, the need to uh, answer or address your dissertation and write that to achieve your degree, mm -hmm. what inspired you to write this history? Mm -hmm. Well, to be honest with you, when I started working on this subject, I was working on immigration. And I was interested in the deeper history of immigration from Central America to the United States. And it became immediately clear to me that the that, that deeper history of Central American immigration uh, to the United States was the history of trade, and especially the history of coffee. And um, it's, it, it's interesting that I, I began with the question, to me, I began with the question of immigration. And uh, the book has been published at a, a kind of extraordinary moment in in uh, the book was published in an extraordinary moment in the history of um, the relationship between um, uh, 
the economy and immigration, uh, between development and immigration, where the, the relationship between those two things are a question that's at the center of the everyday news cycle, but also policy debates. In other words, how to solve the, what's being framed in many, uh, many newspapers and on many news channels as the immigration crisis from Central America has very much become a question about development, economic development. And presumes in, in, in for that reason, I think presumes um, makes a lot of assumptions about the relationship between um, history and the present, between economics and uh, immigration. That I kind of wanted to explore and even, even uh, challenge in uh, this book. So, the the exploring the deeper history of immigration from Central America required that I understand. The deeper history of Central America, which required that I understand coffee, it required that I understand the connections between Central America and the United States and the wider world, which have very much shaped in a, in a, in a rather direct way the, this, the, the routes that immigrants follow from one place to another, routes that migrants follow from one place to another. Fascinating. Um, I'll hand you over to Jordan for a few questions on your methodology. So even the most experienced historians can often be intimidated by archives. And looking through an archive can, to find a source base can often feel like trying to find a sloth in the Amazon rainforest. Even more intimidating can be to approach private archives of businesses and people who might be adverse to academics. So despite these challenges, you draw upon the private archive of the Hill family to reconstruct the story of the family's coffee enterprise. What motivated you to use this source base and how was the experience of using this archive? Well, the truth is, um, I knew that when I began the project that I needed something I didn't have. I needed, I felt, an insight into what life was like on Salvadoran coffee plantations if I were to understand the, um, the, the um, consequences of the history for migration and the forms of displacement that have characterized life in rural El Salvador for uh, going back to the beginning of the um, uh, Spanish colonial economy and continuing through the liberal reforms and, and the remainders of the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, the, I knew I needed an insight into what everyday life was like on the coffee plantations that wasn't available to me in many of the existing works on the subject. I thought, I had an idea Actually, I had a hope more than an idea because I really had no idea what I would find. I had a hope that I could get that by contacting uh, families directly to see what, what, if anything, they had. I admittedly had no idea who those families were when I set out. What I did was copied a list of, I was doing a lot of research in coffee importations into the United States and especially into San Francisco at that time. What I did was copy a list of every Salvadoran family that sent coffee to San Francisco in, like, in the first half of the 20th century. And I, there were about you know, 20 or 30 names on the, of families on the list. I went down the list and I got in touch with every, I Googled every name and I got in touch with everyone whose name I could find via Google. And it just so happened that um, some families got back to me and some families didn't. Everyone, was, everyone who got back to me was willing to have me come and look at their papers uh, for the most part or have a conversation with me, but it, uh, turned out that um, the Hill family just really had an extraordinary archive of documents that had not been touched. And I think they were hoping that I would tell them what they had because 
They had this kind of abandoned office that James Hill, the founder of the family, had used as his private workspace away from the rest of the business in the house. And it, it going through those documents was truly a matter of peeling apart papers that had not been touched for a century and uh, had not been touched uh, since his death in uh, uh, around 1950. So I think they were kind of hoping that I would help them understand what they had and understand maybe um, their family history in uh, uh, a new way. And that was the case for a lot of the families I heard from, and I used some of their other, some other private archives in the book, but it was, for whatever reason, the case that the Hill family had a comprehensive and really extraordinary set of records um, that for, do form the most important basis for the book, absolutely. Yeah, it would, be a, it would not be a book without their um, invitation to me to come and look at what the materials that they had. What was that interaction like with the with the family when you turn up at the farm? Uh, like, well, really the, I was welcomed very warmly by the person who manages their businesses. So they weren't they. Uh, I was welcomed very warmly by members of the family I met before I got there. Thanks to some connections I had made with Salvadoran historians uh, here in New York and in the United States more generally, I was welcomed very warmly. But the truth is that when I got to their their plantation and their coffee mill, Las Tres Puertas. Um, which was founded by James Hill in 1896 and still continues to be a hugely important center for coffee production and exportation in El Salvador. Um, they let they just left me alone for for two days, and I spent those two days taking probably you know a couple thousand photographs. And um, after I, when I could no longer stand up, I uh, wrapped it up and. Um, spent the next couple of years, three years, four years, five years going through that material and trying to piece it together into a coherent narrative because the stuff that I had taken pictures of was not in narrative form. It was, it was, um, they were business records. They were numbers. They were um, descriptions of work of very particular jobs on in very particular places. There was no narrative, overarching narrative holding the thing together. So the bulk of the work I had to do over the next five to, I mean, we could say 10 years uh, was to piece those business records together into a coherent narrative. I'm using coherent, uh, maybe generously for myself, but that was the goal um, anyway. And that was the really work of doing the book, uh, making the book, uh, making the book was piecing together those, those records are very hard to decode into a story. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that covers one of the questions I was going to ask, which is that it must have been overwhelming to walk into a, a room, untouched documents, and now have to piece together some kind of story out of this. Right, um, I, right. It was because I knew that there was something in there. I had no idea what I was looking at or how to use it, but I knew there was something in there. And then it was, it was just kind of a, a matter of cracking the code. And the only way that I know how to do that is to spend time with those documents and read them over and over again until they begin to make a sort of sense. Um, and that work is, uh, you know, everyone here knows that that work is really um, uh, trying. Cool. Uh, so I'm going to move to uh, a more kind of wider idea, which is that <coughs> global history is a common thread throughout your book. As you discuss the history from the Callery, Karl Marx, the role of the United States in coffee history. Right. So you engaged in these global the global history of Latin America. Uh, what were the main challenges for this methodology to incorporate such a wide understanding? 
Well, um, as is probably evident in a number of places in the book, the main challenge for me for incorporating all those aspects of global history into my, into my understanding of what happened in El Salvador was that I didn't know anything about them. I mean, I, I was, you know, I, I, I didn't know anything about uh, the history of the, the uh, European science of thermodynamics. I didn't know anything about the history of Java. I didn't know anything about, um, I, I barely knew anything about the history of El Salvador. And so I had to, in order to make sense of what happened on the Hills family, Hill family plantations, I had to uh, uh, teach myself as much as I could about those things. And I'm, I know that there, there are, um, there are really attenuated spots in the book that reflect my, the fact that I, you know, um, was really teaching myself about those, those things kind of after the fact, but I felt like I had to do them because it wasn't a matter of bringing these things into El Salvador to try to kind of use them to understand what was going on there. It was a matter really of tracing threads outward and trying to understand, trying to kind of interpret what I saw happening on the ground in a wider context. So I didn't have an idea, I didn't have a preset idea that the history of coffee was actually the history of, in part the history of the idea of energy. But I saw that the ways, ways that Hill was organizing his farm, and I saw that the ways that coffee was being marketed, and those two things seemed to cohere around this other history, the history of the idea of energy, that to be perfectly honest, I didn't know anything whatsoever about. So digging down into the hill, the history of the Hill family, the Hill farm, the Hill mill in Santa Ana, El Salvador required that I reach out, reach my understanding into all their places that theirs went and that their coffee went. And that was, um, that was an education. It's interesting that you say that you had to teach yourself these things. I think, uh, you know, from my own perspective and talking with Phil and other people reading this book, that it actually has a very accessible feel towards it when you when you pick it up. It gives you a lot of context to be able to follow the story. Uh, and it's interesting because in Stephen Pinker's book, Sense of Style, he talks about that dichotomy between someone who's, you know, been in a field for so long that they don't know what ordinary people don't know. Right. And the right. gap of knowledge. I think that's, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't trained as a, as a global historian. And um, I think that's one of the challenges and opportunities of global history more generally, and you guys can probably speak to this as well, but you are brought into, brought into the necessity of understanding things that you've never, you've never been familiar with. And that's both, as you say, a challenge, but also a really exciting opportunity. And I do think that, um, I, I would say that it's true that you can kind of see the surface of things, or maybe you could even say see the essence of things in a way if you're uh, um, coming to them as a beginner or a novice. But um, you can you can kind of narrate your attempts to make sense of them in a way that resonate with someone else who's attempting to make sense of them. But at the same time. Uh, yeah, I do wish I knew a lot more about the history of coffee in Brazil or the history of coffee in, um, you know, the Dutch Empire or even simply El Salvador. And I think, uh, uh, yeah, there are, even after 10 years of working on these things, there, rema there remains um, a lot more that I think I, I uh, would like to know about it. 
So you did this as your PhD project. So I was wondering, like, what was that experience like of taking on such a, a big kind of global uh, topic uh, and maybe not being that familiar with most of what you're talking about? Mm -hmm. It wasn't. It didn't feel big as a. It, it didn't feel big as a PhD student because I felt as a doctoral student that um, I just had to do something, and um, I didn't. And, and I think that was a challenge because I didn't really understand, even after I finished my dissertation, I didn't really understand what it was about. I had just done something that was kind of like a research report connecting the history of coffee in El Salvador with the history of the United States. Like I didn't truly understand the conceptual um, or what was unique there or what was original there or what was important there. And, and I think that's in large part because I had yet to fully metabolize the documents I found. I had yet to fully um, explore all the dimensions of uh, the, the uh, places in the world they took me to and the different histories they brought me into the center of. And I just think that that project of, of deeper understanding required more time than a PhD program would have permitted. So I, when I left my PhD program, I had something that was adequate, but not for me, especially satisfying. So the truth is, I didn't do that as a PhD student. I didn't take on something big. I took on something rather small and did that thing and was kind of um, had these nagging, nettlesome questions about, well, what am I really doing here? And what's the part that I'm still missing? Some uh, really useful insight for us fellow PhD students. Uh, <laughs> Um, so I'll hand over to uh, Phil, who's going to just introduce the thematic questions that we've got related to the book. Okay, so we've talked about this, but Coffee Land sets out to tell the story of the 20th century acclaimed coffee king of El Salvador, James Hill. But thematically, it addresses much more than the history of one coffee farm. And there's those vast array of themes that we're already touching upon. So we're going to ask you some pertinent questions related to the major themes in your book including global history, history of global economy, inequality, and post-colonialism. So you assert in the book that coffee is one of the most important commodities in the history of global inequality. Mm -hmm. How do you engage with the concept of inequality in your work? Right. Well, that phrase is, is an attempt to reframe the global history in a certain way, because a global history in the, in the kind of key texts right now is framed as a, um, a uh, kind of an account of connection. Right. In the Emily Rosenberg text, it's, a, it's all about a world connecting. Um, in the Jürgen Osterhamel text, it's about uh, um, a web of connections that form the basis of the modern world. The, the metaphor, the dominant metaphor for understanding the dominant heuristic for global history right now is connection. And it struck me that that was a, a attenuated and probably inadequate and kind of a, a misleading way to represent those processes because the idea of connection does not account for the vast um, divisions that those connections have approached have have uh, resulted in. Like, and in that way, the idea of connection does not truly represent the way that in, in which we are related to people. Um, and places far away through uh, these processes that have been classed, categorized, and narrated as connection. So I wanted to bring the history of inequality into that discussion of connection, in part to understand how our understanding of global history as a process of connection has contributed to the creation of such inequalities. Coffee is especially interesting in this regard, unique, I say uniquely interesting in this regard, because 
it not only um, is uh, materially, economically, just in terms of um, you know economic statistics, at the heart of the story of uh, widening inequality, deepening division, deepening material division between places that produce coffee and places that consume coffee, and people that produce coffee and people who uh, consume coffee. But it also is um, the primary commodity that we use to think about how the world economy works, and the primary commodity that we use to to try to change the world economy works, to make it more "quote unquote" fair, to make it more "quote unquote" equal. So it strikes me that coffee, especially, plays a, a kind of conceptual role in our understanding of these processes of connection, and it even presents us with a, a set of stories about how uh, what we call connection um, helps people by making our relationships to them more fair or more equal or more just or more sustainable or whatever that coffee is telling you that it's doing and whatever kind of um, appealing phrases it's using to describe where it comes from but it was worth to me telling this story as a way to critique um, not only the history of the world economy and the history of the inequalities that have resulted from what we call global connection, but also our understand our ongoing understanding of those connections themselves. Mm. That's, that's great. It's interesting how coffee can be used as that like a portal to right. explore and reshape how the field understands global history. And right. it's fantastic how easily your book sort of slips into those things from thinking about coffee on one farm to thinking about the global impact and uh, all of a sudden switching to thinking about um, say the calorie or trains or the development of technology and, right thank yeah. you um i'll hand over to jordan again for some more uh, thematic questions yeah so we're, uh, you're kind of touching on it there the idea of connection um so from hipsters imbibing brazilian grounds in cafes in palermo buenos aires to rural workers cutting coffee beans in Weber and angle guatemala coffee is cl closely linked to this latin american history and the history of modernity so how does your work on El Salvador fit into this wider history of Latin America? Well, <clears throat> yeah, that's a great question. That's a question that I've asked myself a lot about what, what, in, in, uh, what about El Salvador is uh, unique and what is representative. I don't uh, necessarily think that's ne the most productive debate, except that I would say, or the most kind of productive discussion to be having with oneself when you're writing a book. But I would say that I've often thought that the history of El Salvador is the history of Latin America, only more so. Uh, there's a way in which the, that country, um, in large part because of the scarcity of productive resources and population density, has undergone in particularly intense ways uh, processes and uh, struggles that uh, do uh, can stand in for Latin American history more generally uh, and, and exemplify Latin American history more generally, even um, if, uh, uh, yeah, I, I would say that. Um, there are obviously things that happened in Latin America more widely that did not happen in El Salvador and vice versa. So I'm not claiming that one is simply a, a kind of, um, uh, stand in for the other, but I do think the wider processes of uh, land privatization, you know, uh, uh, land privatization and uh, establishment of export-led development and its consequences do tell a really important story about independent Latin America in particular. Mm. 
And how is it that you, like, so when you're doing the PhD and into this process now of writing the book, how is it you go about fitting uh, or dealing with this theoretical idea of the history of Latin America and then write, like narrowing it down to El Salvador? Right. Um, well, to be honest with you, I, I'm not sure that that's, that's how I was thinking about it. I was thinking about uh, Latin America itself is obviously a historical construct. It's obviously a category, it's obviously kind of a category of historical understanding that doesn't necessarily, um, that makes certain things visible and, and uh, kind of makes, makes it hard to see or understand other things. Um, I wasn't necessarily thinking of the history of El Salvador as representative of quote unquote Latin American history more generally. I think it's the history of El Salvador is probably representative of something about the world more generally, which is the challenges of uh, export-led development. Um, that's it's probably true that I was trying to tell a global story rather than a specifically Latin American story. I mean, just because I'm, I, I suppose I was a little suspicious or hesitant or resistant to um, the idea that Latin America can be encapsulated in that way, or even that there is such a thing as Latin America that should be encapsulated in that way. Other than, you know, Latin America is obviously a historical understanding of a place and a people. Um, so then another theme I was interested in um, is post-colonial studies. So this list receives a lot of attention in the academic world as it currently trends. Uh, but unlike British colonies in Africa and Asia, after the Spanish Empire lost its grip on the American polities, many European settlers did not leave and even more continued to arrive after decolonization, including James Hill. Did you uh, engage with the idea of postcolonial studies? Uh, like, have you considered it? Did you use it at all? Well, one big part of postcolonial studies to me is uh, um, postcolonial, uh, doing a kind of postcolonial um, critique is uh, to examine and critique the categories of histories themselves, including that there could be such a thing as uh, um, you know, colonial period and an independence, post-colonial period or colonial period and an independence period. Um, it's also the case that the history of coffee in El Salvador specifically, I think the history of coffee in El Salvador specifically kind of um, uh, makes us question what we mean by um, um, uh, such terms, because I think one, one thing you can very clearly see in the story of El Salvador, in the story of coffee in El Salvador is that uh, what, although land privatization, for example, was carried for was carried through, was put into policy or put into law on a national level, um, it it was really uh, it was really affected. It was really put um, put into place at the ground level by the by the international or global market, and especially by the market that developed between the, um, El Salvador and the United States. In other words. Land privatization, the privatization of formerly uh, communal lands in El Salvador, did not necessarily, did not entirely or necessarily displace um, indigenous landholders. It did change the form of their hold, the legal form of their holdings, but it did not necessarily dispossess or displace them. What what enacted the displacement and the dispossession ultimately was the form of the market for the nature of the market for coffee that arose between El Salvador and the United States and between El Salvador and the wider world. 
in that the rewards that were available in that market accrued to those people who could um, most effectively, uh, who had the most power in that market, who could most effectively participate in it, who, mo who could most effectively, for example, and especially get, get loans. And who could most, most effectively get loans? Well, those people who spoke um, European languages, especially English, the people who could um, get loans could use that money even in times of downturn to make their plantations and their mills appear to um, uh, coffee buyers as places that would produce more or were likely to produce more, uh, better coffee. So the, the, the um, Salvadoran coffee producers who thrived in the market were those who were plugged into these wider circuits of knowledge and culture and capital uh, and this is what ultimately allowed them to claim larger and larger shares of the land that had been privatized in El Salvador. It wasn't the original land privatization that took the hands out of indigenous landholders. It was, over time, the, the nature of the market itself. And so that this really does, to me, uh, force us to question the, the categories of um, colonial and post-colonial, or, or um, yeah. Thanks very much. Um, so I'll hand over to Phil, who's going to ask the, the final set of questions. Hello again. So I have a few questions on coffee's role in public history. Sure. Um, so with the rise of specialty coffee over the past de decade or so, and consequently so many consumers for the first time becoming more interested in where their coffee comes from. I'm, I'm sure you'll agree it's a fantastic time to be writing about the history of coffee. And you published this book with Penguin Random House, which is oriented towards a wide audience and not an esoteric group of coffee historians. Right. So what were your main considerations when choosing your publisher? And what were the major challenges in publishing your work? Um, my main considerations in choosing my publisher were I wanted to write, I wanted to work with someone who would challenge me to um, uh, learn something new. I wanted to work with someone who would challenge me to write what I, uh, a story, this story in a way that would be accessible to a general audience that I did believe because for precisely all the reasons that you just mentioned would be interested in it. Now, I didn't write it for that audience because I thought they, I, I, because I, uh, you know, so um, appreciate their, the, the particular forms of pleasure that they take in coffee or the particular way that they understand it. I mean, I wrote the story in, in part to critique those understandings of coffee as a kind of a, a, a product that itself bears these um, really uh, flavors of, uh, you know, tropical fruit and, uh, uh, nuts and chocolate and all these, all the, you know, that I wrote the book in a way to critique our understanding, the kind of contemporary understanding of coffee as a boutique product to be celebrated, which really is a form of the ultimate fetishization of the commodity itself, rather than the relations of production and the history of those relations of production from it, which it results. I think talking about coffee as itself bearing all these extraordinary flavors right, really does blind us to the, or really does distract us from uh, the material conditions under which 
that copy has been produced in the history under which those material conditions were created. So I wanted to work with someone who would encourage me to write a story that could be read and enjoyed by people whom I was critiquing. I think that was our, that, that was a special sort of person whom I was lucky to find at Penguin Random House. So it was more about finding uh, uh, someone who shared a sense, I shared a sensibility with rather than one, one type of publisher versus another. That's great. I appreciate how you tackled the disconnect between how we perceive coffee today and like a celebrated sense and how we perceive it as historians. Right. And I guess one question stemming from that would be, did you struggle to frame, say, the more specialized aspects of coffee historiography in ways more accessible to a public audience? Or what was that experience like? Mm. Well, I have to say that I don't think that I was, I, I'd be interested to hear what you think about that because I don't, th I don't think I was especially faithful to the, the kind of, um, I didn't feel especially indebted to, I don't feel I was especially faithful to the kind of orthodoxies of coffee historiography um, or the kind of uh, um, landmark questions of that genre. Um, the question that was most important to me, I guess, was the question of how to make people work. That seems like a coffee that the center. That's a question that's at the center of both uh, histories of how to produce coffee and histories of histories of producing coffee and histories of consuming coffee. And I kind of decided that that would be my question, and I wouldn't necessarily feel obliged or responsible for dealing with other um, people's questions along the way. That question, how to make people work, did of course bring me into a conversation with a lot of people who have previously worked on coffee and worked on El Salvador, but. Um, yeah, I did not feel especially uh, uh, determined to have something new to say about uh, the academic debates about that. No, that's interesting. Thank you. Um, so how has an increased conscious consumerism in, in the coffee world influenced your desire to write this history? And do you think it has shaped the reception of your book? Um, hmm. Well, I don't know about the reception, but definitely the, the, the new ways of thinking about coffee or specialty coffee has definitely shaped my, uh, definitely shaped my interest in writing this book. I, I, yeah, the ways that we use coffee, the ways that we talk about coffee, whether it's about celebrating what flavors the coffee contains or it's terroir or the place where it where it comes from, you know, coffee very explicitly puts us into a, a global relation. And I think that um, it does so in a way that makes us feel good about those global relations. And I think that was, that more than anything else was what I wanted to uh, critique. But the way that certain products put us into global, like help us feel good about the global relationships that sustain our own lives while kind of hiding their, their uh, uh, underpinnings from us. I mean, I, you could say that it, uh, what I wanted to write about was the fetishism of commodities, the way that we attribute uh, social um, conditions or social relationships to the nature and essences of commodities themselves. Um, I particularly wanted to write about, I kind of, uh, 
the way that, you know, coffee tells us one story about where it comes from that um, serves us. And it's, I think that's, that, that is one way in which coffee is a very represent, is a representative commodity. Um, it, you know, the, the, it, it shows, it, it, sh it shows very clearly to me the ways in which um, economic connections that constitute global capitalism or globalization, or whatever you want to call it, the world that we live in, have vastly, vastly outpaced our understanding of what those are and where they came from and what they mean. And coffee really vividly demonstrates the difference between like the material relationships between people in one place and people in another and um, the understanding of those relationships. And it, in, in, for that reason, it vividly demonstrates that um, you know, the kind of the relatively impoverished sense that we have as consumers of global commodities or participator or participants in uh, global capitalism, we have we have an impoverished sense of interdependence and what we owe to other people and other places. And I, it, as I wrote about coffee, I came to think that that kind of impoverished sense of inter interdependence or a, a kind of lack of way of thinking about what we owe to those people, to the people who make the things that we need, the ways our lives are in entangled with theirs and very much dependent on theirs. I, I actually came to think that that was not an absence. It wasn't something that was missing. It was rather something that had been produced and more so that the production of that um, our kind of inadequate notions of connection, our inadequate notions of interdependence was a key condition of possibility for the survival of global capitalism over time. And ultimately, I think that's what I'm trying to explore, what I've been trying, what I, what I landed on uh, trying to investigate in this book. Cool. Um, do you think in some ways it is it's a message to consumers to sort of reshape their focus? I, uh, sh sure. And in that, I do think, um, I try to do that primarily to listening to people who work coffee. I mean, the, the thing about the concept of fair, one of the limitations of the concept of fair trade is it's like, it's based on a concept of fairness that has been, been, been defined by richer people for poorer people. And so if I'm telling people to, to, to kind of reconsider their relationship to products and through products, their relationship to other people in other places, I'm telling them to do so in ways that the people who produce those products have asked them to do so. So I'm, I'm telling them more than anything else to try to listen, uh, not to me by any means, but uh, to those people who, um, whose lives depend on the on those products in another way. And it would be better, it would be better, I mean, I'm, I hesitate to say world, but I guess I will. It'd be a better world if, if, if we did listen to more things like that. I, I agree. And I think you put it very well. Um, and it is fantastic that coffee can be used as a starting point for successful public history. Um, and how do you think the historical field can 
benefit from engaging a wider audience outside of the academic fortress to be more general? And how can historians improve in their engagement in public history? I think it's a, um, well, I would say two things. It's an, ex oftentimes public history or narrative history or books that are published with trade presses are seen as um, less, less sophisticated or less rigorous, or not, not meeting academic standards. Translating this set of, um, translating a relatively academic set of ideas into, uh, and questions into a, into a uh, book for a popular audience was the hardest thing I've ever done from a scholarly point of view or a, a intellectual point of view. Um, embedding my questions, my arguments in the narrative itself, which is what I ultimately tried to do, is, was in uh, kind of the, for me, the hardest thing I've ever taken on intellectually and from a scholarly perspective. So I think that that, it's a little bit, um, and I very I wanted to do that because I thought there was an opportunity in part because of the, I thought, I thought there was an opportunity to do that in part because of the subject to me. And I thought, and I thought that opportunity would be really rewarding. So I don't think it's quite fair that popular books often get um, kind of classed uh, beneath academic books in that regard for their con for their contribution. I do think it's um, the questions that academic historians are raising are immensely important and um, immensely interesting, and the things that academic historians find their their their. Uh, work in the archives is immensely important for uh, developing an understanding of how the world works. I think that um, it is a great challenge, but also a really extraordinary and interesting and exciting opportunity to try to put those insights and that research and those questions um, into uh, a form that will be compelling to a broader audience. But I also think our, you know, the broader audience is also students. And so there is a way in which this book, while it's written for a quote unquote popular audience, is also the way that I would tell the story to students, ideally, especially undergraduates. And those two things can be kind of complementary purposes, I believe, in a way that is probably um, uh, not 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 recognized as often as it should be. Yeah, well, as a student, the way that you used the archives and told the story about coffee was fascinating and inspiring for me. So, thank you, and that that, that concludes our questions. So, Thanks thank you very much for answering. It was very insightful. Thanks yeah. very much. Thanks very much, Augustine, for coming along and sharing your fascinating insight on this this history, uh, global and Latin American coffee history.